You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net. Anne Catherine Hales is Professor and Director of Graduate Studies in the Programme in Literature at Duke University. She's the author of several books, including How We Think, Digital Media and Contemporary Technogenesis from 2012, and How We Became Post-Human, Virtual Bodies in Cybernetics, Literature and Informatics from 1999. If you look back at your career as a researcher, in what way have you seen your research practices change, or not, over the years in your interactions with new media and digital tools? So to what extent is your own development in this respect exemplary for changing research practices within the humanities as a whole, do you think? Well, my research career goes way back before digital tools to the age of the typewriter mm -hmm. and carbon papers. And at the time that I was working in that medium as a graduate student and a few years beyond, um, I never thought about the materiality of the media. Mm -hmm. The media for me was just something to express ideas. Mm -hmm. But I never thought about how the media might be interacting with the ideas. And then as I moved deeper into digital tools, it became clear to me that, in fact, there was this very strong feedback relation between the kind of medium one uses and the way and even what one can express within that medium. Yeah. To take just a simple example, a typewriter never rearranges your letters, but word processes do all sure. the time. Uh, <clears throat> so I became interested in the idea that one could take a theoretical conceptual structure and combine that with media practices mm -hmm in a, such a way that the practices would inform the theory and the theory would inform the practices. And my first and most extensive venture in that way was creating an alternate reality game with two co-directors, Patrick Chagoda and Patrick Lemieux. Mm -hmm. And together we created a huge alternate reality game called Speculation. It's still available on the web at speculation.net, mm -hmm. but you need to use a one instead of the I in speculation. Okay. And that was a venture where the ideas are completely integrated with the kinds of practices one needs to play through the game. So uh, that was my most extensive venture to date, really putting these notions into practice. Fantastic. And does that reflect, do you think, what's happening in the humanities, your own experience, or do you think...? Well, I think it does. Uh, at Duke, uh, we're initiating a new media program mm -hmm. that has this idea of the integration of practice and theory at its very core. And we're designing the program with a series of seminars, each of which will have a lab component built into it. Okay. So. I think these ideas are spreading, and I know at Duke they're certainly uh, becoming the center of a new kind of curriculum. Yeah. All right, thank you. So I'd like to explore a bit more your concept uh, of techno-text, which in writing machines you have defined as something that comes about, and I quote, 
when a literary work interrogates the inscription technology that produces it, end of quote. So, first of all, what I was wondering is whether you could reflect on the kind of material agency of text in this. So, not only maybe interrogating or investigating their own mediality or materiality in this sense, but also kind of actively enacting or performing it. So, I was wondering how this this, this concept of technotext in the sense relates to the emphasis in a lot of current theory on what texts do um, and not just what they mean so which is evident for example in uh, Joanna Drucker's concept of performative materiality um, where Drucker states and I quote that performative materiality is based on the conviction that a system should be understood by what it does not only how it is structured end of quote. My second question would then be um, in what sense have you envisioned your own scholarly publications in specific as technotexts uh, or also as technogenetic interventions, which is a term that you've previously used to characterize your book, How We Think, Digital Media and Contemporary Technogenesis? Well, I should just say that I think every text is performative mm -hmm. and can't help but be performative in the sense that it is instantiated with a medium and it's performing within the constraints and possibilities of that medium. Yeah. Uh, I'm entirely with Joanna Drucker, whose work I admire tremendously in her idea of performative materiality. I think she's trying to get at this idea that every text performs its own materiality. Yeah. But technotexts go beyond performing materiality to actually exploring their own materiality. Mm -hmm. So like all texts, they perform their materiality, but they also reflect on their performance of their materiality. Mm -hmm. So you get a kind of reflexive dimension with technotexts that makes them distinct from all texts. A good example for me would be uh, something like... Um, Mark Danielewski's Only Revolutions, mm -hmm. <clears throat> a highly constrained text which is constantly, through its form and its structure, and the way it's materially instantiated on the page, reflecting on its own materiality. As for um, technogenetic interventions, as you know, the idea of technogenesis is that humans co-evolved with techniques. Actually, that's your next question. <laughs> we'll get into that in a, in a moment. Um, so, texts have certainly been among the, the cultural forms that have participated in technogenetic interventions. This has been shown by some work that Stanislaw Dehaene did, for example, with uh, sibling pairs, one of whom was literate and one of whom was illiterate. Uh, and this was a practice in poor farm families in Portugal in the 1930s and 40s where one sister would stay home with the younger siblings and watch them while uh, the younger sibling went to school. And so you got a bunch of pairs of sisters who were raised in the same family, had similar environmental influences, one of whom was literate and the other was illiterate. And uh, through fMRI analysis, Dehaene was able to show there are actually changes in the brain that literacy brings about. That if you think about illiteracy, what illiteracy means 
is the only way you encounter languages as a stream of sound. And one of the things that happens when someone learns to read is they become much more aware of the phonemic structure of language because typically that is how one learns to read. Mm -hmm. And so it's no longer just a stream of uh, continuous sound. It now begins to have a phonemic structure. Yeah. And these differences are actually registered in neurological changes in the brain. Mm -hmm. and can you say a little bit more about how, you, how your own text, how your publications, like your scholarly publications, like, for instance, Writing Machines, is, I think, a good example of how yeah. they kind of are reflexive of this kind of technogenesis, how it kind of, how that my, for you works. Yeah. My own work, uh, in my own work, uh, writing machines is the most extreme example of what I was calling a techno machine, mm -hmm. techno text. So writing machines was a collaboration between me and a print designer, Anne Burdick. Um, and Anne did the design for the book and I did the content for the book. But the idea was that there wasn't really a division between the content and the design, that the design was interrogating the content and the content was interrogating the design. So Anne had a wonderful uh, set of ideas about how that book could be designed mm -hmm. to reflect this interrogation. For example, um, the pages of Writing Machine are clay-coated paper, which means that they're slick. You have to pay extra to get clay-coated paper. And each page is imaged as though it were a three-dimensional object. Mm -hmm. So the uh, pages, as they go toward the spine and the binding, become slightly darker than they are at the outside edges. And on the cover of the text, um, the cover has vertical lines which you can feel tactically. You don't really see them visually, but if you run your hand across the cover, you can see them, you can feel them. So we think of the cover as a flat surface, but in this case, it's actually a three-dimensional surface. And then the uh, image at the center of the cover is comprised of all of the pages of the book being superimposed on one another as if you could look through the book all at once and see all of the pages. And so this play between a two-dimensional surface and a three-dimensional volume continues throughout the text in this kind of way. So that means that you're constantly alternating or having presented to you simultaneously the normal perception of the page as a two-dimensional surface combined with the sculptural volume of the text considered as a three-dimensional object. So that's one of the ways in which this, uh, the design is moving in concert with the content of the text, which is about um, the protagonist's increasing awareness that materiality is absolutely central to yeah. the body of text. Fantastic. Thank you. So I'd like to reflect on your notion of agency. Um, so you've coined another concept called intermediation, uh, which you use to clarify how agency works as an interaction between biological and technological beings. So human and machine here form a kind of interlocking cognitive system, a kind of hybridization of sorts. 
Now you talk about the existence of a feedback loop between technical beings and human bodies, as they are both in forms, involved in forms of continuous reciprocal causation. Um, so what does agency mean for you exactly in these forms of human technology hybridity? Um, and in what sense would you continue to uphold the difference between man and machine here? And in what way could you see them as only being born and emerging through their relation? And moreover, does this notion of technogenesis privilege the way the human has co-evolved with technics to the detriment of the human's other relations, such as with the animal, the environment, the planet, the cosmos, and so forth? Okay, so... Um Bernard Stiegler would certainly agree with the proposition that humans emerge through their relationship with techniques. So you could make the argument that the cognitive features distinctive of Homo sapiens in comparison with other species emerged as a result of their engagement with mm -hmm. tools. If we consider language as a tool, this is especially clear. Yeah. But there are also arguments that the kind of sequencing of events that language requires was duplicated through tools in the fabrication of compound tools, tools with more than one part, yeah. like a stone axe. So the idea of sequencing of parts enabled compound tools to be created. At the same time that compound tools were being created, Broca's area in the brain was undergoing very significant changes and expansion. So there is an argument to be made that the evolution of language co-evolved with the evolution of compound tools. Mm -hmm. And if you say that, as Steven Pinker does, the language instinct is one of the distinctive features of Homo sapiens, then you would have an argument that Homo sapiens didn't just use tools, Homo sapiens appeared with tools yeah. and co-evolved with tools. So as for what this means for agency, I think it's becoming increasingly clear through arguments like Andy Clark's uh, extended cognitive systems and uh, other sorts of theories like that, that agency is always distributed. Mm -hmm. That's always been the case, but in the contemporary period, it's even more obviously the case that human agency is now deeply entwined with technical agency. Mm -hmm. And the more sophisticated our technologies get, uh, the more deep is the interpenetration of human and technical agency. As for whether this emphasis on technics privileges coevolution with technics at the expense of other coevolutionary dynamics for animals, environments, and so forth. I think that's only true if you see this as a zero-sum game, mm. that either we're co-evolving sure. with techniques or we're co-evolving with the environment. But clearly, all of this is happening simultaneously, that humans are defining their ecological niche in relation to other animals, including the domestication of animals. Mm -hmm. They're defining it in relation to the environment. I don't know if we're defining it in relation to the cosmos other than through fields like astrophysics, mm -hmm. but I, I take your point. Yeah. Uh, that would ostensibly be a, a possibility in the future. 
So I don't see it as a zero-sum game. I see it as all of these things happening uh, simultaneously. But I would like to make the argument <clears throat> that computational media are not just another technology. Mm -hmm. And I thought uh, about this very carefully. So you can't say that computational media are the most important technology for human purposes, because you could easily argue water treatment plants mm -hmm. are more important. You can't have large congregations of humans with some way to handle the logistics of sanitation and sure. water purification. You can't say that it's the most transformative because you could easily argue transportation all the way from dirt roads to interstates to trains and planes have transformed human culture more than computational media. Yeah. But there is one thing you can say about computational media that separates it from any other technology, and that is that it has a stronger evolutionary potential than any other technology that any human has ever invented. And the reason for that is its cognitive capabilities. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that humans achieve dominant dominance as a species on this planet because of their cognitive abilities, we now have a technology which is distributing cognitive capabilities into every other technology that exists. As soon as a technology becomes relatively complex beyond something like a simple manual hammer, computational media are there. They're in transportation networks. They're in water treatment plants. They're in food distribution mm -hmm. supplies. You can't think of a complex technology that has not been permeated by computational media. And that puts computational media in a unique category, not necessarily based on importance or transformative possibilities, but on their evolutionary potential. And this evolutionary potential points strongly in the direction of further cognitive development. So you might say that computational media are mirroring in the technological uh, regime what happened with humans as a species in terms of superior cognitive capabilities. And we know how the human story turned out. So I think that we're seeing an analog now in computational media. And this is an argument, <clears throat> among other things, that universities have to get involved with this, not only in engineering and computer science, but in the humanities as well, because there are strong historical forces at play here. And the question is not whether this is going to play out historically if universities don't get on board. It's going to play out historically regardless. Mm -hmm. The only question is whether universities are going to be involved in it and have a chance to shape it. Yeah. Okay, thank you very much. So a little bit more on the specificity of media, in this case maybe of computational uh, media. Because throughout your work, you argue for the importance of media-specific analysis. Um, and by emphasizing the specific affordances of media, so for example, those of print and digital or computational media, is there a risk of setting up these differences maybe as oppositionals or as binaries? So. How can we study a medium's specific affordances while also acknowledging the kind of similarities and continuities that exist between different media? 
Um, especially since, and as you also emphasize in your work, that materiality is emergent, uh, and as we as human beings, uh, as you also explored before, think can emerge alongside, through, and with media. So, I was just thinking, what an emphasis on what those working in a tradition of Heidegger, Derrida, and Blanchot to singularity be able to perhaps help us with this, to kind of singularities association, not least with performance and the events. So w w would it be helpful maybe to think about media singularity here as well as media specificity? Well, uh, as to whether or not by emphasizing the specificity of media we're setting up some kind of um, exclusive domains for different media, I think that's... Uh, a position which is often found in the humanities where they see print culture as opposed to new media culture, for example. Yeah. And that's one reason why I collaborated on uh, creating this collection of essays called Comparative Textual Media. Yeah. And the whole idea of that essay collection was not just to show the specificity of particular media, but precisely to show how they overlapped one another, responded to, another, to one another, and so forth. So I think we should locate media specificity within media ecologies. Okay. Yes, media compete. They've always competed. To some extent, that's true of print and digital media. But they also respond to one another. And uh, they imitate one another. They try to incorporate each other's techniques within their own uh, specific affordances. Yeah. So there's always this very robust dynamic between media going on that we shouldn't lose or overlook when we think about media specificity. And then to the second part of your question, I have to admit I'm mystified by that. And I'll explain why I'm mystified. So. I haven't yet read Timothy Clark's book, The Mo Poetics of Singularity, and I assume that your question's responding to his book. So the argument for singularity, as I understand it, is that each text, especially powerful texts, have their own specific ways of thinking, and deep engagement with those texts calls on you to engage with that way of thinking and that that way of thinking is so powerfully articulated in specific texts that it can't be explained or assimilated into a cultural paradigm. So it's kind of counter the whole paradigm of cultural studies. Instead of showing, as Fred Jameson does, for example, uh, you know, what are the ideological substructures underlying this text, that it engages the text on its own terms without reference to ideologies, uh, cultural uh, contexts, and so forth. And I think there is a movement now in the humanities against cultural critique mm -hmm. and symptomatic critique. Mm -hmm. That was illustrated in the special edition that uh, Sharon Marcus and Stephen Best did for New Literary History mm -hmm. on surface reading. And though their take on surface reading is somewhat different than I think it, uh, Timothy Clark's is, nevertheless, still they were reacting against the idea that the text is always representative of something else that isn't in the text. Sexism, racism, whatever it is that's being found in the text as a reflection of the culture. 
But I have trouble connecting this with the idea of media because media, by definition, are mass forms. You can't have a medium which is singular. Mm. That radio, television, new media, print, they are media precisely because they are technologies which are available on a mass basis and which produce a mass array of cultural objects. That's what makes them a medium. So I see a strong tension between the very idea of medium and this notion of singularity. And moreover, as I understand the argument for sim singularity, it's not deeply engaged with the materiality of the text. It's deeply engaged with the conceptual nature of the text and the way the specificity of the language, the specificity of thought, is instantiating a mode of thinking that calls the reader to a deeper engagement with it. So I see a strong tension between the whole Drucker-like argument mm. for the importance of materiality versus this deep engagement with the structures of the text. And I, I would say I don't think these should be regarded as mutually exclusive, although they're very different. They're two different ways of approaching a text, both of which have strengths and limitations. And in my way of thinking, the greater repertoire we have of ways to engage with text, the richer the final texture will be. So I'm not trying to argue with this whole singularity uh, idea. Great. I think it's great. And if it's done brilliantly, as it is apparently in Timothy Clark's book, then more power to him. But it's one approach among many, and I don't think it's an approach that fits easily with an emphasis on media. You are listening to Culture Machine Live, a podcast series dedicated to discussions of culture and theory. To find out more about the open access electronic journal Culture Machine, visit www.culturemachine.net.